Father, we come before you, we give you thanks for who you are, what you've done, and the people that you have allowed us to reach. You have given us so much of a blessing in the tasks that you place before us, the ones that we can accomplish. We thank you for uh, the ability as well and the resources that you have provided for all of us putting those together to make these help events, these evangelistic events, these outreach events a reality. We pray that you would give us even more. We pray that you would help us to uh, set ourselves apart, be sanctified for the work which you have called us to do. And Father, as we get into your word, we ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'd like you to take out a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab a Bible that's in front of you. And I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Book of Revelation, chapter 5. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, there's a scene that is taking place here, and I'm, I'm going to predicate it on this. Last week, I told you guys that when you get to heaven, who are you going to see? You'll see Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will be the one who was there. And I told you, you won't see the Father. Neither will you see the Holy Spirit. But it has been throughout church history, and they've made little figurines of what it might be like to see the Trinity up in heaven. And it's always several people's belief that you will see the Father because after all, in the book of Revelation, you see the one sitting on the throne. Now, I'm going to read that to you. I want you to follow along in verse <coughs> 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came... Now, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and were holding the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who's sitting on the throne? Oh, see, that gets a little tricky here. Wait, now, wait a second. Jesus is the Lamb of God who goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Now, the individual, uh, an individual, he sent me a question, and I love these questions. These questions that somebody is astute, they're looking into Scripture, and I said, Jesus Christ is the only one that you will see when you go to heaven. You won't see the Father and you won't see the Spirit. You'll see Jesus Christ. Now, you may hear the Father because remember when Jesus was baptized, he went over to John and to the river Jordan and he got baptized. And when he came out of the water, remember what the Father said? This is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him or hear ye him in the King James. And so the father clearly spoke then. Also, <coughs> excuse me, in Acts chapter 5, uh, we know that the Holy Spirit can be lied to. And in the book of Acts, he separated Saul and Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas for the work to which he had called them. So the 
Spirit was clearly speaking in some fashion. And so the Spirit speaks and God speaks. So how do you reconcile the fact that we're only going to see Jesus when I said that, and you turn to the book of Revelation, and you see somebody sitting on the throne, which the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, goes up and takes the scroll from. How do you reconcile that? Now, that's why I love this question that came through. And I don't know if that individual's here today. I don't want to call him out by name, but he was an excellent Bible student uh, to send me that. Because at the end of it, he said, so how do you explain Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 8? You know, and exclamation point. And I said, okay, I, I, I'm up to the challenge on this. Now, I want to ask you something. Jesus Christ, does he have seven eyes? Didn't you just read that? Let me, let me read it again. Looking as if it had been slain, it says, and he had seven horns and seven eyes. Do you think Jesus has seven horns? I don't think so. I don't think he has seven horns. And I don't think he has seven eyes. So what am I to gather from this particular passage when it starts out here? Am I to take it literally or figuratively? figuratively now i want to ask you in john chapter 4 verse 24 it says that god is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and in truth so this idea of god being a spirit does god have a hand the answer is no he does not have a hand you know the scripture says that god has wings that we run to the covering of his wings, the shadow of his wings, and we get protection. And so there are what are known as anthropomorphisms in Scripture. Scripture is delivered to us in such a way that we can understand it. And by the way, this is a vision. This is not an actual event. This is a vision. When you have a dream, is it an actual event? Well, if it is, there's, boy, you are in touch with God, let me tell you. But this idea of a vision, it's a representation that had been given to John so he might understand what is actually transpiring in heaven, even though his tiny brain is not able to take it all in. Because remember, if we actually saw God, we would die. Right there in our human bodies, we have to have a new body to be able to see God. So what is being described here is certainly God the Father, but if you go beyond the actual words of the passage and you already know it's to be taken in a figurative sense because Jesus is described as having seven horns and seven eyes, and it also says the Father is sitting where? On the throne. Do you think the Father can sit on a throne? No, you know, Scripture says, I think it's Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, that heaven is God's throne. And so if you say there's a chair that he's sitting in, well, how big is God if he sits in a chair? He is bigger than the universe. If you go to hell, he is there. If you go to heaven, he is there. If you go to the depths of the seas, he is there. And so God is trying to help us out here in understanding who he is. It's not the father who is actually sitting on a real throne, extending his right hand and giving a scroll to Jesus Christ who has seven horns and seven eyes. He's not doing that. Jesus, and, and I just got the question this morning. I was talking to Cheryl about this. I said, what say you, Cheryl? What do you think about this? She goes, well, I'm not quite sure. What about, why doesn't, you know, God just show himself? And then I said, didn't somebody else say that to Jesus? Just show us the Father. And Jesus is like, 
Oy vey. Have you not? Have you been with me so long that you don't know who I am? And he is the exact representation of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And people, we have a tendency to get a little frustrated. Why can't you just show me the Father? Just do it the way I want you to do it, God. So that you can be represented in my own image rather than representing himself as he is. And so I just wanted to let you know, I thought that was a great question. Because people will often read scripture and they'll get something out of it. And it's something that is just not quite correct because of the technique of interpreting Scripture. There's a way to interpret it, and there's a proper way. There's a proper way to interpret it, and there's an improper way. And so the individual who sent me that question, I would pat him on the back and say, Well done. You are searching the scriptures like the Bereans to see if what Bill says is true. You know, if he's saying that on a Sunday, just like they were searching the scriptures to see what if Paul said was true. And I want to let you know this too. If I ever come up with a doctrine and you come to me and you show me from scripture, I don't think that's quite right. I will recant and repent. I want to make sure the scripture is built up. And if I need to be ashamed in some way that I didn't study well enough, well, that falls on me. It's the scripture that has to be lifted up. I just want to make sure we're interpreting it correctly. Now, along with that, we're going to come to a section, hopefully, we have time today, in First John chapter 5. It begins in verse 8, and it talks about there are three that bear witness in heaven. You can go ahead and turn there right now if you'd like to, and I'm going to give a full explanation when we get there. But it is dealing with the three that bear witness. Now, in the NIV, it says the spirit, the water, and the blood is what it refers to. In the King James, does anybody have a King James authorized version here or a New King James? Somebody read the New King James verse 8, nice and loud. Okay, that's New King James? Yeah. What do you have? I'm going to go with King James, right? Can I get to it? Because I have New King James too. Where did it go? It is. And there are three that bear witness in earth the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Okay, is that the 1611 authorized King James Version? Okay, that's what I'm looking for. King James, Elizabethan English. Anybody have it? No one? Somebody have some electronic tech that can bring it up? It's behind me. There are three that bear witness in the earth. Spirit, the water, no. No, that's not the authorized. They've changed it. Okay. There is this debate, and I was asked about this last week or the week before. It was, uh, John, it was Kathy. Kathy asked me about it, right? There was somebody that came up to her and said that the NIV is not the right Bible. You're not supposed to use the NIV because it doesn't say things correctly. There are verses missing, right? Actually, I want to I want to give you one. Um, I think it's in Mark. Let me check. Matthew, Mark. Mark, I think there's one in Mark chapter 4. I'm almost there. 
I don't have the Pharisee tab, so it's taking me a little bit of time. Mark chapter 4, verse... No, that's not it. Hold on. I'm looking still. Let me find it. See if I can find it. I need to give you an actual example. Okay, you, what is it? John chapter 5, verse 4. In the New King James, it talks about the angel stirring up the water in the pool of Bethsaida. Yes. But in the NIV, it's not, the angel is not mentioned. In the book of John, chapter 5, verse 4, it's just getting it right now. Okay, the, the reason I'm pointing this out to you, I, I know that there's a couple in Mark, but I thought it was 429, but it's not. There's, there's a couple of them in there. Where you'll be reading along, and you may not even notice this, but it will go from like verse 27 to verse 29, and 28 is not even there. It's not even listed. Mark, you got one? Hold on. Well, in First John chapter 5, verse 7 is, I think, the one you wanted to hear. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, Ghost. Yes. And these three are one. There you go. Okay, it's verse 7 specifically, and it talks about... Matter of fact, Daryl, you want to go back to verse 7? Maybe that was it. That was my error then. Anyhow, I don't want to bring any confusion here, but what I want to point out to you is there are going to be those who are contentious about which Bible version to use and which one is the most correct. Now, for those who are... that tend to be, and the word is pejorative on this, they tend to be at the edge and they want to be argumentative about it. They will say, and there's a group of people that will say the King James Version authorized 1611. There it is. 1611 is the only inspired Bible that you should be using and you should not be using anything else, especially the NIV, the NAS the Living Translation, all of these different versions you should not be using. This particular verse here was added. This verse should not be in the King James. It was added because the three are bearing witness in heaven, Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. That is not in the oldest, most reliable text. Even Pastor Chuck Smith, when he was alive, he would point this out, and he used the King James Version. There are some other problems that people would say with the King James. For instance, did you know that the King James uses the animal, the unicorn? Yes. There, yeah, there's no such thing as a unicorn, unless you've seen that goat recently that had just one horn sticking out of its head. And people will say, that's why you shouldn't use the King James. I love the King James. But there's other people too that, you know, the uh, book of James is not really named the book of James. It was named after King James the sixth, and it should actually be Jacob instead of the book of James. And there's that controversy that's out there. And there are several others. For instance, you just saw the Holy Ghost. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not a ghost. That implies somebody was dead, right? But that's the word that they use. And so I'm just pointing out the problems with the King James. There are problems with the NIV. When people say there are verses missing, they're really not missing. They're footnoted at the bottom. And it's okay. But then you get the people with the NAS, New American Standard. They'll say, it's a word-for-word translation, but it doesn't read very well. It doesn't communicate really in modern-day English the way that it should. And so what are we supposed to do? The Bible is not correct. What's going on? I'm just becoming apoplectic here. I'm going to pull out my hair, which I've already done. But I'm going to pull out... (laughs) I'm going to pull up my hair. Which version should I actually use? All of them. 
you go through all of them to get the proper meaning. The Bible claims to be perfect in the original autographs. We no longer have the original autographs. But we can determine what those original autographs are through all the translations which are out there. And that's how we come back to what is actually correct. So we don't have to be argumentative on this. If somebody wants to come and argue about the King James Version and just say, well, you know, 1 John 5, 7, it's not even supposed to be there in the Bible. And they're like, what? You know, they'll get some kind of question going on. And you don't have to be argumentative about it. There's a book out there called the um, King James Controversy by James R. White, and he goes through some of this. And I, I just want to make sure you guys are settled. Whether you read the NIV, the NAS, the King James, I love the flow of the King James you know, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He guideth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. And it's just so poetic. You know, it's so good the way that it just flows sometimes in the King James. And then sometimes it's like, I don't think I'm with this Elizabethan English. It doesn't work so well. And so that's when you go to another translation. I tell you all this so that you will not be stumbled. You will be able to get in the scriptures as well. And you will be able to rightly divide what is there. And you can give a proper answer to anybody who would have a question. Just like this individual who emailed me the question, I was able to answer. This is actually my answer to him. And I'm going to make sure that he listens to the message so that he gets this. Now, we are currently in 1 John chapter 5. I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles. <coughs> now, we left off in, of course, verse 21, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so this idea that each man must love his brother or sister, which is out there. And a the final point I wanted to make on that is when God tells us to love somebody, there are several scriptures. I'm just going to give you the addresses. I'm not going to read them to you. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, that one says, for God does not show favoritism. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Colossians chapter 3, 24, and James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. God does not look at one of us and say, you're my favorite. He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at a particular race and say, that race is my favorite race. He doesn't look at men and say, men, you are obviously superior to women. He doesn't say that. He says, women are co-heirs. He looks at the little children. He says, such are the kingdom of God. That's, that's who heaven is made up of or people that have the attitude of children. And so when it comes to loving your brother, we are not allowed to say, I'm sorry, I can love everybody else but him. Or everybody else but her. You are to love your enemies just as you love your wife or your husband. Or just as you love your child. That's what Christ calls us to do. And so when he says we must love our brothers, we're not supposed to show favoritism. I hope that the kids, if you have multiple children, you don't love one more than another. Except for Eric, he has to love the youngest one since it was just she was just born. Charity is her name, right? How big? How long? How And Jen's doing fine? Ah, that's good. So this is number 18? What? 
Number six. And you have two more names picked out, right? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's it. You have a full baseball team if you just keep on going. Okay, so going on. The Lord does not show favoritism here. Now, going on, we all have questions of the Bible. The Bible has the sufficient answers for how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to believe. For instance, have you, and I've asked this question before, have you ever wanted to know if you're really saved? I have. I've I've wanted to test that. Am I really saved? How do I know that I'm saved? Well, it answers that here in John. How do you know, how do you know that you're in the last hour? Now we see what's going on in the world. How do you know that this is the last hour that Christ said, you're living in the end times and you better be prepared. How do we know that? Well, what about the question? How do we know who other believers are? How do you know that the person sitting next to you is actually a follower of Christ and has given their life to them? Even though you may think you know them really well, how do you know for sure? How do you know what true love is? I'm sure there's a lot of young men and young women that are searching for true love. And how do you know what true love is? And how do you know that we are part of the church, the church universal, not the part of the church in Lakeside? How do you know that you belong to the body of Christ? That question, you know, I've asked that question before. How do you know that Christ lives in you? I mean, can you open up your chest and when a surgeon is in there, he opens up your heart and goes, oh, there he is. He's right there. Is that, how do you know that Christ lives in you? Because scripture says that. Also, how do you know that we are really loving others as we should And how do we know that we have eternal life? Not just this salvation, but that our life will go on forever and ever and ever. John, in this little epistle, answers all these questions. Now, what I want to do, since we're in the last chapter, is I want to digress just a little bit, and I want to show you some of the answers to these questions. The first one, I'd like you to go to 1 John chapter 2. And we'll be flipping through here pretty rapidly. The first question was, how do you know that you were really saved? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, it says, But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. So if we obey his words, if you don't obey his words, there is no assurance that you are saved. And you might say, well, wait a second, I went forward In an event, and I'm not saved by works. That is true. But if you go forward at a crusade or at an altar call, something like that, there are many people that do that that are not genuine. How do you know you are genuine? Because you desire to start doing what God asks you to do. And you work at it. You go, okay, how how do I do this? How do I get in line with what he wants? If you are constantly considering that, then... You can know that you are saved. The second question was, how do you know that this is the last hour? Turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And we know this phrase, we know, is in the book of 1 John 18 times. And you can look up these things of, we know, we know this. Dear children, this is the last hour. How do you know? And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. How do you know somebody who is of the spirit of Antichrist? They hold to the things of the world. 
Now, I'm gonna, I did this at home Bible study, and I'm going to do this real briefly here. It's been uh, not in most of the major media outlets out there, but it's been in some of the alternative media about what's going on with Planned Parenthood. Hopefully all of you have heard about this. The latest revelation in the um, fourth video that came out, which incidentally they tried to stop from coming out, and they want to stop the rest of them. I think there's a total of nine uh, videos that they're going to have come out. And they've been saying, oh, it's just a bunch of edited stuff. And what Planned Parenthood, and I'm going to tell you this, this is what Planned Parenthood was doing in that last video. They are taking completely whole babies and they are harvesting the organs from those babies. That is what they are doing. And they are allowing some of these babies to be born. And they're not saying be born. And it, it, I can't personally watch the videos. Because it just, it would send me. I would probably end up breaking the computer that I'm watching them on. It just makes me so angry on the inside that we are doing this as a nation. And they're trying to hide this. They're trying to suppress it. Now, how do you know you're in the last days? Because of that kind of behavior. That kind of behavior is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, I need to say this too. For those of you who have gone through this particular procedure and know those who have, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no reason to walk out of here thinking, I am such a louse for supporting this. Maybe you've supported it in the past. But that is the spirit of Antichrist. It's not pro-choice, it is pro-death. And I notice the media always says anti-abortion. It's pro-life. And we need to stated as such, not anti-abortion, but pro-life. And so that is a major marker that we are living in the last days, that there are the spirits of antichrist that are all around. And I will tell you this too, not to be political, but I'm going to tell you this, as a junior senator from the state of Illinois, Barack Obama did not stop infanticide when he had the chance to do so in his state legislature. He had the chance to say, we will not stand for this, and he actually tried to get it approved. That means a baby can be born and left to die on a table. That's what he was for. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not calling him the Antichrist, but that is certainly the spirit of Antichrist. When we take life like that, you know, God doesn't even destroy human life. He assigns it to hell, either to heaven or to hell, but he does not destroy it. And the spirit of Antichrist is to destroy human life. And so that's how we know that we are in the last days, the last hour. Now also, uh, three, how do we know who other believers are? How do you know that the person sitting next to you? First John chapter 3 verse 10 is actually saved. It reads there in chapter 3 verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now I know a lot of fathers think the boys that come and want to date their daughters. They're the devil, you know. <clears throat> I would attest to that. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor anyone who does not love his brother. So God clearly spells out, if you're a believer, you're going to do what is right. You're not going to be involved in a lifestyle of some kind that God says, this is wrong. Like if you're a kleptomaniac, I just can't stop. Every time you go to Disneyland, you have to steal something up there. Every time you go into a supermarket, you have, I, I believe in God, but I just got this problem. No, God hasn't changed you from the inside out. And that's a benign example. You know, it can be drugs. It can be sex. It can not rock and roll, but it can be all of these. 
it can be all these different areas that you would be involved in and you think it's okay and God says, no, it's not okay. You know who the children of God are by those who do what is right. And those are the children of the devil who do what is wrong. Now, I may do a little preaching here. This idea of medical marijuana, one of the worst mistakes our country ever made. And that was all a ruse anyhow, just to make marijuana smoking legal. And it's just ruining the minds of kids that are out there, especially teenage adolescents and going on into early adulthood. People that are pushing that forward and they say, well, I need it because, dude, I don't feel well. I'm sorry, you know. A lot of times we don't feel well. There's other medication. You can take THC that won't get you high in pill form. No, dude, but, you know, I kind of, I got, you know, the paraphernalia, dude, and I, well, you know... uh, and that's how they talk. You ever talk to them? They can't even give a coherent thought, you know, a sentence with structure in it or anything else. It's just like ruining their minds. And so if, if you want to say that you're a believer and I need my toke in the morning and in the afternoon, I'm sorry. You got to put that away. You got to get rid of it. I, if you have some here, I want you to go home today and I want you to flush it. I want you to put it out there. You might have tears over that toilet, but I want, you to, I want you to just throw it in there and flush it away. Now, if you need some pain meds or something else, get away from the smoking pot. Just go talk to a doctor and say, Doc, I need some help with this. That is another big ruse. That is the spirit of Antichrist as well. And even scripture says that those who are involved in sorceries will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the people who are on the outside. And by the word, the way the word sorceries is pharmacia, where we get our word pharmacy, which where we get our other word drugs. Now going on with this, how do we know what true love is? Turn over to 1 John three nineteen. Excuse me, 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If you are younger, or maybe you're dating somebody and you're not younger, or maybe you're older, this applies to men or women. It just depends on how sacrificial the individual is towards you. You will know if they love you or not. The more they're willing to sacrifice, the more you know they love you. Because Jesus Christ went, quote unquote, all the way and gave his life. If you are willing to give up anything you desire for the sake of the person you live with, as long as it's not sinful, if you do that, you are expressing love to those who are around you. And the same thing, if you love somebody, if you are using the personal pronoun I all the time, or me you don't love me very much. What do you mean I don't love you very much? Because you don't pay attention to me. Because you don't fix me a meal. Because you don't wash my clothes. Because you, you don't watch out for me when I'm driving. And you know, you're not very nice to me sometimes. And that's just the men saying that. That's not even the women. Uh, you know, so... When that happens, when that type of thing is taking place, when you're focused on yourself and you're not, you're not really concerned about the other person, you are really not expressing love at all. That's not the type of love that God describes. God is love. 
If you look at him and follow his example, the book of 1 John here, it tells us all of these things. Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you want to know if you're loved? Do you want to know if the person next to you is actually a believer? Do you want to know if you're in eternity? The answers are all right here. And that's why John wrote this down, so that we would be confident in this. Now, also, how do we know that we are part of the church? It's not just because you show up that makes you part of the church. Have you noticed we don't send around a um, roster with your name on it? Are you a member? Yes or no? And you just check that off. We don't do that here. The reason we don't do that, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a genuine believer, you are part of the body of Christ. Everyone. That's the way we look at it. We don't send you pledge cards. How much are you willing to pledge this year? You know, we, look, you already know. I've already talked about the money part. That's up to you. That is completely in your ball court. If you belong to Christ, praise the Lord. We have fellowship. We get together. We discuss the word. We do worship. We have fellowship, the apostles' doctrine, all of that stuff. It's all good. And that's how we know who belongs to the body of Christ. Again, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And so he, he gives us this information. He lets us know that we belong. Also, in verse, excuse me, how do we know that Christ lives in us? In chapter 3, verse 24, you can turn there. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. So there is this internal witness, the Spirit of God that is inside, because you know, if you're a believer, when you're doing wrong, right? When I do wrong, believe it or not, there has been at least once or twice. When, when, when I do wrong, I just feel absolutely miserable. I am, I am spent. God, I'm so... Yeah, I did it on purpose. I'm sorry, God. I know, I know. Okay, will you forgive me? And he goes, yes, I forgive you. And, oh, I still feel terrible. And I beat myself up afterwards, right? Even though I know he forgives me, that's just the flesh. And I have a hard time just like you guys, moving on from that point. But that's how I know that God lives in me. He brings to me this gentle conviction. He doesn't beat me over the head with it. Every time I sin, let me ask you, is this the case with you when you sin, does God go, bad boy? Does he do something like that? Or bad woman, or you shouldn't have done that. No, it's like you're talking to a dog. You know, no, no, no. Does God, no, God doesn't do that with us. He just gently gives us a verse or something like that. We go, oh, and it just pierces your heart is what happens. Now, going on, I think I have two more here. How do we know that, we are really loving others as we should. First John chapter 5, verse 2. Now, we haven't gotten to this yet, but this is what it says. This is how we know that we love the children of God. In other words, those around us. By loving God and carrying out his commands. And this seems like a non sequitur. It doesn't seem like it goes together. How do you, how do you know that you are loving others? The scripture clearly tells us here this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving and carrying out his commands you mean that what I do personally with my walk with Christ reflects how I love others yes absolutely you mean if I choose to go to church every Sunday I'm showing love for the rest of the body 
Yes. You mean that if I pray, I'm showing love to the rest of the body? Yes. You mean that if I serve, I'm showing love to the rest of the body? Yes. You mean if I'm sacrificial, I'm showing love to the rest of the body? Yes. Now let's flip it. You mean if I'm not being sacrificial, I'm not being loving to the body? Yes. You mean if I don't go to church and fellowship, I'm not being loving to the body? Yes. Now at this particular point, if you're prone to do this, you will heap guilt upon your shoulders and you'll walk out of here and say, woe is me. The purpose of the instruction is so that you will say, okay, I need to turn this around. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Now the last one, and I haven't even gotten to 1 John 5 yet. The last one is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. You can turn over there. How do we know that we have eternal life, that life is going to go on forever? 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, everything that was predicated before this, if you're doing all of these things, God simply says, you are a child of eternity. You're going to live forever Now, we're going to exist forever, but existing in hell is not something that you want to participate in. Participating in living with God in heaven with the saints, that's what he gives us. So if you've had these questions, like I've had these questions, I started going through this and go, wow, we know, we know, we know. You can know. If you just, on your own, read through the book of 1 John again before we get to it the next time, if you will do that, you will have so many of your questions answered. You will have some satisfaction. You will have some assurance. And if you're not doing those things, then you can turn it around. And God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to receive communion. Communion is something we do as a body of believers at least once a month here at the church, sometimes more often. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to have the worship team come up, if you guys would come up right now. And we're going to sing a song. Now, if you don't know if you're part of eternity or not, if you're part of the group that has eternal life, if you're part of the church, all you have to do is simply say, you know, I want to know that I'm loving everybody. I want to know that I have this eternal life. You simply ask God to save you from your sins because we are all sinners. And you do that simply by saying, God, will you save me from my sins? Will you give me new life? As we're singing this song, if you're not sure if you have eternal life, just pray that prayer. And as the cup is being passed out and the bread is being passed out, you can say that prayer silently to God and he will give you that forgiveness. Now these are exciting times that we're living in and as soon as we're done with the book of 1 John, I am going to give an update as far as prophecy is concerned and we're going to try to bring it into our realm of reality, what has taken place and maybe not how much time we have, but we know that the time is close. So I would like you guys to come on up and grab this right now as we prepare to sing our song.